0: Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome back to Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now we're kicking off Series 5 with a discussion about our latest special report on all things crypto and the very, potentially very complex regulatory future, which is beginning to emerge. And for the discussion, I am delighted to say I'm joined by my co-author, Todd Eret, and contributor, Joe Rosinski. Hey, hey. (laughs)
1: Hey, uh, Thank you, Susanna.
0: Now, crypto assets and the vast universe of associated products and services have grown rapidly in recent years and are becoming increasingly interlinked with the regulated financial system. And it's fair to say that policymakers appear to be struggling to keep track of the risks posed by this sector, where most activities are either unregulated or at best likely regulated, or regulators are fighting over who should regulate things. And to add to those challenges, bodies such as the International Monetary Fund and the Financial Stability Board are beginning to raise the specter of increasing financial stability risks associated with cryptos. Now, as you might expect, at a high level, there is a growing need for an internationally coherent policy approach, including definitions, jurisdictional perimeters, and in terms of exchanges, prevention of market manipulation, systemic risks there is a shopping list and that shopping list includes lending and payment risks, banking, payments, anti-money laundering risks, tax policy, tax evasion risks, securities, fraud, scams, Uncle Tom, Cobley, and all. And then you add in cybersecurity, hacking and data privacy. Everything on that list will need to be addressed specifically in terms of cryptos. So given that sweep of issues... Told, what are we talking about in terms of the size of the crypto's marketplace and how many folks are actually involved in cryptos? Uh,
1: <clears throat> thank you, Susanna. It, it's kind of interesting, um, the The estimates for the number of users and the total assets, total market size, you know, literally changes by the minute. Um, obviously, you know, with prices now kind of in a downturn, you um, it, call it a bear market happening in cryptos. Um, the total value of all cryptos has fallen significantly off its peak, uh, which occurred last fall, um, which I think it neared $3 trillion in assets. Um, you know, what the exact number is today is is up for debate, somewhere around $2 trillion or maybe slightly less than that. But, you know, there are new projects being launched daily um, that uh, – you know, it, obviously, it's it's hard to you know uh, measure that pulse directly on a day to day basis. Um, there's also you know an estimate by the New York Digital Investment Group, which is a, a large crypto organization here in the in in the U.S. I, I think they pegged uh, the total number of users in the U.S. or People that own or have traded in crypto at around forty-six million, which is a, a pretty big number. I've seen other estimates somewhere around twenty-seven million or thirty million or or whatever. So it, anyway, you look at it, it's it's a sizable number number somewhere between ten and fifteen percent of the U.S. population. Um, so it's it, it's one of those things. It's hard to put an exact number on.
0: And where are we in terms of? Um... We're going to come into to, to regulation in a lot more detail, but in terms of politics and the political awareness and cryptos, is that beginning to come together now? Because obviously that will drive the direction of travel in terms of regulatory engagement and indeed regulatory approach. Yes. A-
1: <clears throat> Interestingly, in the United States in the last year, we've seen, call it oh, an awakening or a new awareness Um of of both the public and you know in Washington um lawmakers are now realizing the importance of it um it's it's also become somewhat politicized um where there was uh, a component of the infrastructure spending bill last year um that required reporting um, to the IRS, of transactions, um, anything greater than ten thousand dollars was to be treated uh, like it like a cash transaction. So that that kind of galvanized the industry um, to engage in lobbying and fundraising and really engaging with politicians for the first time. Um, I've I've spoken with several lobbyists and uh, people on behalf of the industry. And um, let's say 18 months ago, there was zero lobbying going on in Washington. Now they're everywhere, is, is what one lobbyist told me last week. He said they're everywhere. So it, you've seen a, a very quick you know, maturity that occurred. And, and now what's happening is um, political action committees have been formed. Some of the crypto billionaires out there are backing um, political candidates, there is now almost a, um, you know, a litmus test for political candidates. Where do you stand on these items? Where do you stand on cryptos? And uh, they're targeting and fundraising for um, specific candidates for office. So it, it's it's matured incredibly quickly in the last you know twelve months.
0: Yeah, and so all to play for. And and I mean, this may be stating the entirely obvious. Not all cryptos are created equal. So Joe. What are the type of cryptos that are being traded? I mean, most people I suspect would have heard of Bitcoin, but what else is out there?
2: Now, that's a great question and something we could probably spend uh, hours, if not days and weeks and years on this one topic alone. So the way that I've always broken this down is probably two parts to this. One is currencies, right? So we've all heard about Bitcoin for years and years and years, Um But going beyond that, that's a currency, right? So that's what you're trying to compete against, the dollar, the euro, whatever the case it is. But you're starting to look at other areas. Other areas that I consider really important, probably even more important, are platforms. And this is where you start to see things take off. Like if you've heard about Ethereum or Solana or Avalanche or Terra, there's a lot of other platforms that are based on the blockchain technology that allows people to take advantage of these types of things and build whole new businesses. Everything you could possibly think about could be built in this space at this point going forward. So the platforms are a big thing which have birthed like DeFi and NFTs and DAOs and the Metaverse and Web3, all this stuff which we can talk about in a bit. But the breakdown for me, quite simply, is the cryptocurrencies being a currency on one side um and then the birth of stable coins which are a tokenized version of this so pegging basically a basket of something so a basket of tokens are, are basically a basket of currencies around the world that you could create in terms of like u.s tether um or u.s dollar coin or die These are the stable coins that are going to be talked about a ton over the course of the next several years, as they will potentially compete against some of these um, denominations that we have throughout the world. But uh, yeah, so the two sides of the currencies and the platforms, from my view.
0: And where are we on regulatory approach? I mean, is there uh, consensus emerging? Is there even anything that might look like this is how we're going to regulate cryptos. I mean, how is that beginning to look?
2: This is a, It's wild to think about this. So I guess I got involved in this space in 2011. And so way back then, it was mining like Bitcoin. It was really the only thing around at that point in time. And then advancing to what Todd was talking about in terms of the politics and then the, eventually the regulation around this. It's first, at least in the United States, so we can go global in a second. In the United States, we're talking about, uh, you know, Joe Biden kicked off, President Joe Biden, kicked off this this signature that basically said, hey, everyone needs to start thinking about what we need to do to get together to think about common terms, common ideas, approaches to this, everything we just sort of discussed around AML, KYC, um, CBDC, so Central Bank Digital Currency. So all of that has to be rethought about, and this is going to happen globally. So when we start to think about regulation, we really need to start thinking about how does this play a role in people's lives? How are we going to interact with this? And there's a a myriad of different ways to look at this. In the beginning stages, we're seeing some states, United States, look into this and say, "Okay, what can we say as um, is this a digital currency, something that's legal tender? We haven't quite got to the point where in the United States we're there. There are two countries that are doing that el salvador uh and then i believe it's in africa but forgive me it's um republic of congo i believe is the second that's made it legal tender but i think it's i think it's central africa
1: okay central african republic oh, thank you <laughs> yeah, Just yeah, it's central african republic. yeah. <laughs> okay
2: no thank you for that <laughs>
0: But you're seeing well let's be frank, that that makes a point in and of itself. I mean, no disrespect to the Central African Republic or indeed El Salvador, but they are not mainstream big financial services centers. They are, I would suggest, emerging economies who are doing their level best to stabilize an economy with the use of cryptos. and that's a very different use case, I would suggest.
2: It definitely is, Um, but what you're seeing is different countries around the world are really looking at this in unique ways. So United States, maybe in the UK, um, established uh, countries that basically, you know, why do we need to do this? They don't technically need to do this right now, but countries that have had staggering inflation are saying, you know, we should do something differently. Um, if I'm in Venezuela or I'm in another country in Venezuela, I think a 2,500 percent inflation recently, people are looking at things differently and saying, what can we do to change the paradigm? And so they're taking on new regulation. I think about Dubai, so the UAE, they're developing friendly um, regulation around this to allow for and they are kind of the hub for moving currency back and forth um, in the Middle East. And so you're starting to see that change the paradigm. So we're seeing a lot of things change there. The,
1: the one thing so the, on. the one thing I would add uh, to what Joe says, and maybe take, uh, maybe clarify one of the things that he said, there isn't a need for immediate regulation. I think as quickly as things are moving, regulators are seeing a need to probably act quickly. Um, but But I agree with what Joe said was, you know, there's a lot of different, aspects or angles that need to be regulated in different approaches. You know, El Salvador is a good example. The I think the intent there is, I think 20% of El, El Salvador's GDP consists of foreign payments or remittances into the country. You know, so it's Americans sending money back to relatives into, into the country. So I think some of the intent there is, um, you know, a more efficient payments System or network, you know, to cut out the big, you know, um, you know, money uh, transfer companies and the fees associated with it. So, so if you look at it from a regulatory standpoint or from a legal standpoint, is what are the priorities that regulators are going to have to, you know, um, target? One is, you know, AML KYC, obviously, you know, the payments aspect. Um, is going to be a priority. However, you know, like stable coins, I believe, are going to be a real early priority for regulators because of their similarities to the traditional banking system and their disruptive potential to the banking system. If stable coins essentially, you know, kind of take the place or compete directly with the traditional money market funds and You know, payments that are happening out there, it's going to be an early priority for regulators to get their arms around stable coins. Um, You know, and then there's the whole central bank digital currency aspect as well, and how that's going to mesh with the use of stable coins. Are they going to be competing or or what have you? And which I know we're going to talk about later. But, that you know, then there's the investor protection and fraud aspects. You know, the SEC's mandate is investor protection. Um, you know, they want to make sure that they have their arms around you know scams, frauds, rug pulls, and all of those things. So, the the regulatory or legal approach, you know, in the U.S. anyway, is gonna it's gonna have multiple prongs in a lot of different areas.
0: I would also weave into that the overarching, the supranational policy approach on all of this. And when we've got the G7 putting out public policy principles on what a retail CBDC, so central bank digital currency, what the characteristics of that should be. And we've got the Financial Stability Board and indeed the Bank for International Settlements talking about CBDCs um, being very useful for the cross-border payments, pain points, which, which feeds back into the El Salvador question as well. But it's a very uneven picture, I would suggest. I mean, we have the White House putting out, well, this is what we think CBDCs might look like in the US. Great. Didn't sort of say exactly, but at least it was directional travel. Here in the UK, um, we have a very mixed picture. Let me put it that way. Um, We have the Bank of England and Treasury saying this is what we're thinking, this is the direction of travel, central bank digital currencies, this is what it might look like, a digital sterling. And then we have the Treasury Select Committee, which is a committee of the the UK government, saying that CBDCs in the UK are a solution looking for a problem. You could not get a less ringing endorsement. So it is a very bumpy and uneven picture in this. But there are some real dangers if the, we the world doesn't get its act together and organise to make this work because cryptos have such potential, whatever shape or form they really do. Um, but you know, let, let, I suppose let me ask the question back: Do we think central bank digital currencies, for instance, will be the game changer? What do we reckon?
2: So I'll, I'll jump in really quickly on that. It's a great question. So it's one of those things that I've thought about for a long, long time. And it's, to me, there'll be a handful of central bank digital currencies that will exist. And a lot of them, there's at least 83 initiatives right now around the world that are all trying to do this. They're either looking into it or they've produced them already. There's a handful that have already out, put out something. In time, I think most of those will fade away and you'll see a handful that remain those will likely compete against some of these stable coins that are already in existence or new ones that will come out. And so it will be a battle for like uh, maybe the EU versus the dollar versus, I'm not going to use Tether, which is one of these cryptocurrencies that's a stable coin, but there are other ones that will come out that will compete directly against that. A lot of countries around the world that may not have the most stable currency at this point in time because of inflation or whatever the case is, will default to one of these other currencies, be it a crypto or a central bank digital currency. One last piece on the central bank digital currency thing. I think a lot of people believe that these are the same as cryptocurrencies. They're not. So cryptocurrencies come from a totally different world. The, the, The majority of the idea is decentralization, such that human beings are not in control of it. Central bank digital currencies still have human beings in control of them. I'm not arguing one way or another which is better, but we're talking about code versus human beings and the control therein. So that's a very, very different thing. But a lot of people bunch these things together. I believe.
1: I, <clears throat> um, thank you, Joe, for clarifying that. I agree with you completely. Um, I I'm a bit of a central bank digital currency. Skeptic, to a certain extent, um, on the retail aspect. Um, Yes, I think you know the the world you just kind of laid out and the the path this could take makes a lot of sense. I think there will be tremendous uh, political division or disagreement, and. The privacy issues associated with a retail central bank digital currency where every American has a has a digital wallet to keep their digital dollars in um, the fear of government uh, oversight and or privacy concerns are going to make that a um, a really, really big challenge. Um where I don't know that the American public buys into that anytime soon. And uh, I don't know that the politicians will ever be able to iron out the differences or the concerns associated with it, the potential misuse, privacy and other issues associated with a retail CBDC in the US. So just my two cents. I
2: couldn't agree more. This is going to be absolutely fascinating over the next five years, let's say, where you're going to see various countries trying to battle this out and say okay let's look at the privacy piece alone which is critical to this because as we've moved from a society i'm not trying to speak to politics at all but a society that may be less interested in the sort of the facebook google model of hey these companies are extracting every piece of information to us uh, from us to use to leverage whatever the case is this this new paradigm is literally the opposite of that and the idea behind it is try to make it so that people have control over their assets and their information. And so the hope here with the central bank digital currency is that they have this this, um, gauge that might look like from 180 degrees, right? So one side, it's complete and total um, control of your own information. And the other side, it's the government has total control over that. And so these CBDCs will have to decide at what point in time does a transaction constitute the ability for them to track it, to see it. Uh, in China's example, they have total vision into every single transaction that happens down to the penny, uh, for whatever it was, for whatever it is. United States, when they go down this road, is gonna say, okay, where do we take that 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 lever and where, how far do we move it to? Is it $3,000 or is it $10,000, a traditional mechanism for that? Same thing globally. Um, In the UK, as well as in Europe, all of these things are going to have to be sort of decided. And that's going to be unbelievable to watch.
1: Yeah, I can can just envision, you know, the, the potential fear, whether or not it's a real fear or not, but the potential fear of, you know, politicization of it by one party versus the other. Imagine somebody saying, well, you can't use your digital wallet to buy a vehicle unless it's an electric vehicle. Or something along those lines, you can't use it can't use your digital wallet to purchase a gun, or we know you used it to purchase a gun or or what have you, whether it's legal or illegal that all of these things will raise privacy concerns to a whole nother level of um you know in today's hyper partisan environment. That uh, the general public is not going to buy in, and I don't think the politicians or the lawmakers will ever be able to really iron this out, so that there's a uniform level of comfort by the public that that the, the a retail CBDC is a good thing. Um, but but yes, as Joe said, maybe it's used on a national level for international payments, international coordination, international central bank cooperation and coordination for things. Maybe it's used on an institutional level, um, at some level, you know, between the banks or or, you know, the Federal Reserve. There there obviously can be uses there, but to to get the, the retail American public to buy in, I think, is, uh, is, is a long ways down the road. And there's a lot of obstacles to overcome.
0: Yeah, I think there's a big piece in there about trust. People have to trust their central bank. They have to trust their politicians. They have to trust it's safe. And I mean that in the cybersecurity sense of things, because if it all gets hacked, where's your money gone kind of thing? Um, The the other one, just to throw into CBDC debate before we move on, is Bank for International Settlements has just published its survey of 81, I think, central banks. And one of the, with regard to CBDCs, and one of the things it's talking about, which I hadn't really seen before, is the potential for a two-tier model, particularly with regard to retail CBDCs, where the role of the private sector is articulated. And in particular, central banks are potentially thinking about private sector doing know your customer due diligence, which is an interesting one, given how, shall we say, flaky some of the central bank um, perception on this is. And for goodness sake, some of the central banks have fined the private sector for not getting you know KYC right. Um, and the other role in the private sector is the payment services provider and the interoperability there. So I think there is a huge amount of debate still uh, still to come on all of this. I think we may end up with a two-speed approach to CBDCs. It may be the wholesale CBDCs come first. Those are the international cross-border payments. They help the cross-border payment pain points, which is what the FSB has talked about. And let's be frank, the cross-border payments situation is a G20 priority. So it doesn't get much more internationally important than that. So it may be wholesale CBDCs come first as a use case and and a testing ground. And then perhaps we then delve into the potential for retail CBDCs. Um, But it's going to be definitely one to watch and definitely one firms need to engage in. Anything else on CBDCs, chaps, before we move on?
2: I'll mention one last thing based on what you just said, which is really quite interesting. Um, I think what will eventually happen is you have a lot of people, as Todd was mentioning, maybe 13 14%, uh, at least the United States, have adopted cryptocurrency. Globally, it's actually larger. Depending on where you are in Singapore, it's way higher. It's, it's got to be 40 or 50%, uh, maybe even higher than that. But what the central bank digital currencies will do, it'll be an awakening for people, let's say the masses across the world to say, okay, well now governments are sort of pushing this down, which is great because there's a lot of potential, really cool things in there. But at some point it'll be this massive onboarding for people to say, okay, now I need a digital wallet. What is that? Okay, now I get it. This is where my assets sit. So my cryptocurrencies, my NFTs, whatever, all these things will sit there. And at that point in time, people will be able to make a decision about how they want to transact, what they want to use. Maybe for the majority of people, it will be these these central bank digital currencies. But then there's going to be this tier of people like, ah, I kind of want to hold on to my privacy. And depending on where regulation goes, this is the weird part. A lot of this stuff is semi-regulation proof. So there's a lot of new technologies that we're not talking about just yet that are out there that will be adopted. Maybe we'll talk about this in a bit that will change the way that people can potentially interact on more of the privacy side. So we'll, we'll, we'll tee that up for later.
0: Yeah, I, I would add in with the um, digital wallet piece and so on, uh, You, you, the governments in general, have a real danger of leaving the technologically illiterate, let me put it that way, behind. Those who can't use technology, won't use technology, who no longer have the mental capacity to use technology. I would suggest there's a, you've got to be very, very careful with the vulnerable customers in that sense. Um, do not leave a big chunk of your population behind because of digital transformation. I mean, that's something we've written about many times. But be careful, I think, is one of those um, pieces on this. Another area where uh, be careful, but actually very proactive action has been taken. Todd, the the takedown of Hydra, which I know sounds like something it was out of a Marvel <laughs> film or something, but the takedown of Hydra. Big potential impact and potential, you know, victory for the good guys with regard to financial crime.
1: I, I think. Uh, thanks for bringing up the the takedown of Hydra. I I think this. Um, I use the term. It's a narrative game changer um, for the critics that say, uh, you know, Bitcoin and cryptos. It's nothing but a bunch of illicit activity, and it's it's this, and you know the, the it's, it's it's just all bad and nothing good. Um, ransomware and, you know, drug and arms and money laundering and, uh, you know, it's a safe haven for illicit activity has been the the critics, um, you know, talking points for, for so long. Um, what happened with Hydra, um, which uh, for those listeners that aren't familiar with Hydra, Hydra was the largest dark net marketplace um, located in Russia um, and by many estimates, 90% of all illicit activity on the dark net was happening at Hydra and an affiliated, uh, unregistered, unregulated crypto exchange called Garantex. Um, And so just to kind of paint a picture of what Hydra was, Hydra was almost like an Amazon marketplace where anybody could go in and... Um, purchase documents, Ill, you know, fake IDs, passports, um, drugs, um, arms, and use cryptos to essentially launder um, through its affiliation with uh, Garantex. Um, and the amazing thing was they had a an incredible system of couriers that would do what they call dead drops and actually, um, deliver, um, the goods, you know, uh, into, you know, you could convert currency into, you know, Russian rubles or British pound or euros or dollars and have them delivered, um, throughout Moscow. Um, so the takedown, you know, German authorities in conjunction with, or in coordination with us FBI and, uh, um, U.S. law enforcement shut down Hydra and uh, seized, I think, over twenty-five million dollars worth of Bitcoin. Um, I think what it did was it highlighted the the inherent visibility, permanent visibility, and traceability of cryptos. That the digital analytics. Um, software um, companies that are out there and there's a whole bunch of um, analytics firms that are tracking all of this stuff and they're flagging it. That's suspicious. That address is a known North Korean bad actor or this one's a Russian bad actor or what have you. It, it highlighted the importance and the role that these analytics firms are playing and they're coordinating with law enforcement that, frankly, it's easier to spot this illicit activity, flag it, than, than uh, you know, the use of cash. Um, and, you know, the takedown of this marketplace was, I, I think, like I said, a narrative game changer um, for critics that it's only used for illicit activity. Um, so it's... It, um, it's not to say that another Hydra is going to pop up somewhere. I'm sure one already has. Um, I think also on Friday there was a, the mention or the announcement they had taken down um, a North Korean um, site that was uh, similar. I think it was called Blender, which was a a, a place where you could put in uh, dirty cryptos and bring out clean cryptos. You know, if you want to call it that, it was mix and uh, launder. Um, cryptos um, to to provide some anonymity. Um, But the the industry is all over this. Law enforcement is all over this. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's a good thing for, you know, public perception purposes.
2: So may I jump in real quick? This is I mean, this is a fascinating thing. It's a great story. And Todd, thanks for sharing that one. But it goes back to like the original. The original was Silk Road, founded by Ross Ulbricht. I and mean, he's doing at least 20 to 40 years right now for doing something called the Silk Road way back. And he got taken down, I believe, by the FBI and Interpol by uh, in November uh, 2014. They were doing the same sort of thing back then and up until more recently. A lot of the criminals think that, yes, like bi- using Bitcoin as an example, it was anonymous um, and it's not, it's pseudo anonymous, which means that you have this blockchain, a database that basically tracks every single transaction that anybody's ever done and you could actually track it. So it's way better than any of the mechanisms that we have right now with like people that are trying to do money laundering through various islands and, and cash and all this stuff. It's way more trackable, but we've gone full circle. So where people thought uh, in the whatever, 2011s to to 17, that Bitcoin was anonymous, they then said, well, wait a second, it's not. And they sort of figured it out. I mean, the criminals still haven't until what you're talking about right now with the latest one with Hydra. But there are, and this is the weird thing, there are now cryptocurrencies, they've been around for quite some time, that are at its center, privacy, such that, and there are mixers and all sorts of stuff that we can talk about. But what it allows the individual to do is take money, transfer it in the smaller sums, the bigger sums, it's far more difficult, my understanding, and, and mix that such that you cannot determine who has that money, where it's going. It's way more difficult because at its core are zero knowledge proofs. Ah, that's, a, that's a big one. So I'll define it and then we'll stop talking about this in a second. But ZKPs are basically something that, that you can verify a person or an entity has something without revealing who that thing is. It's a computational component using secret data without revealing those secrets. It's a piece of technology that people really are not talking about right now, but will transform the way that we interact, hopefully for positive, but clearly, there are lots of things that make people nervous about this technology, which is generally censorship resistant and difficult to to manage and work with um, if you really want to find out who's doing what, um, unless you look at the rails. And the rails are something we can talk about another time too.
0: Yeah, and which brings us nicely onto the regulatory way forward, Joe. I, actually, I have one question on, on the privacy uh, piece there. W- around the world, which is the financial actual task force rules, we are having to look as financial services firms, among others, for ultimate beneficial owners. How does that fit with those privacy technologies? Just as a quick question.
2: How do you, do, how do you define that?
0: In ultimate beneficial owner, you, you are required, um, obligated to know who ultimately owns assets. Um, and it's part of your due diligence when you are dealing with customers. So if you have the techno- a technological block there, I, I'm I'm putting my head of compliance hat back on, how would I handle that? How would I be able to look past that? Or would I be just give, giving up at that point and saying, there's no way I can find out who owns these assets. And then I have to take the compliance and risk decision as to whether or not we deal with that person or that entity, if you can't tell who's the ultimate beneficial owner.
2: So the great thing behind the ZKPs is, is that in um, a society that's working to make sure that, you know, not, not a lot of bad stuff is happening or no bad stuff is happening, let's put it that way. Um, these actually safeguard security. So you're seeing more and more organizations just use this natively around retention of information internally and then proving that that person has ownership of something or that something transacted. But it keeps it so that it is far more secure and Uh, social security numbers are unique identifiers around the world about an individual, where they live, what their assets are, are held safe. So it's used to really make sure that that when you want to do those transactions, it's even easier and more clear. And if there were ever to be a data breach, that it, it safeguards the organization and the individual. So in theory, it should help organizations that are transacting at that level. Now, if you were to go into the dark world, uh, it does make those people that want to remain um, undercover a little, much more difficult to try to follow uh, and track. There's always going to be a battle of technology when something new comes out. It's like, oh my goodness, how do we handle this? But once you get past that, there's going to be other technologies that are sort of sit on top or adjacent to it that will hopefully work with it to, to better be able to uncover who those bad guys are.
0: Oh, well, as, as a former head of compliance, that, that gives me at least a degree of comfort that, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be technologically <laughs> blocked from complying with things, which would never be a good scenario. So the, that particular privacy issue aside, regulatory way forward, art of the possible, what are we now looking at, Joe?
2: The world is your oyster, honestly. It depends on what you're looking for, where you want to transact what you want to do every country is looking at this right now and trying to figure out what makes the most sense even territories so within the united states you're seeing various states take much more of a pro crypto posture such that it invites businesses to come there and to transact uh wyoming is one of the big ones in the united states And um, I haven't been there yet. It's one of the uh, last seven that I have on my list. But Wyoming is taking this tact that, hey, if you believe in this technology, um, you want to follow our rules and our regulations, you can open up shop here. You can create a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. I know it sounds bizarre that allows for greater autonomy and and connectivity with groups that want to create these businesses. Uh, Then you go to Dubai or you go to China. Every one of them is looking at this differently. So it's like um, a flavor that you can choose at this point in time, if you wanna upend your business uh, and move it to a country that's either um, more safeguarding this or uh, maybe more controlling of these types of technologies. So I think it depends on your bent and where you wanna go with this.
0: Thank you, yes. And sadly, we are so running out of time. We could carry on chatting about this forever. Um, So I'm going to move on to takeaways for compliance officers. And this, from my perspective, very much reflects back some of the conversation we've had. And if you are head of compliance, head of risk, whichever, um, cryptos is something you absolutely need to get your head around and you need to understand what you're getting yourself into. And that may require upgrading skills, whatever it is. But the other thing I would say that it leads or references into that is engage with the policymakers. I mean, whilst it is, you know, the world is your oyster, to quote Joe back to him, um, equally how this new universe is regulated, you have a voice in that. Engage with the policymakers. Respond to consultations. Don't just sit back and watch it happen. If you're interested in this world, and I suspect an awful lot of people are, go engage because that's the way you can help shape the regulatory future yourself. Todd, takeaways from your perspective?
1: Uh, um, I'll take a slightly different approach from what you said. Um, I think, by and large, most of the large crypto exchanges uh, in the U.S. the the established ones now that are running commercials on television and naming sporting arenas after themselves and and things like that um, the 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 large big institutions and they've actually become that some of them are publicly traded companies. Most of them are taking a pretty traditional um, compliance approach. Know your customer ultimate beneficial ownership. They're putting safeguards in place. They're taking a compliance approach that, that frankly, other large financial institutions are, that are applicable to what it is they're doing. Um, I would differ. I, I, it's not my personal opinion, but uh, at a conference several weeks ago, um, a former um, senior SEC person who's now an attorney in Washington, D.C., said, um, they're not advising their, let's say, startup or innovators to engage with the regulators. So because all you're doing is putting yourself on the ra- on the radar of the regulators So do things the right way and document everything, maybe have an advice of counsel letter on hand saying, we have advised our attorneys and we have talked and this is the way we're doing it for these reasons. And we believe we are not violating laws or We're we're not intentionally running afoul of the guardrails, but, um, you know, there's a large component out there that uh, doesn't want to engage because immediately they feel they're going to become a target for a possible enforcement action. So I I think it comes down to do the right thing um, inherently and what you believe to be the right thing um, in whatever aspect or whatever, um, you know, function or your business purpose or, um, project, um, for that matter, um, is, but, um, you know, engaging with the regulator early on, um, simply just puts you on their radar for potential enforcement down the road. And, um, you know, I, that, that may or may not be the best, best course, mm. um, for, for some smaller firms. Um, yeah.
0: I have to confess, I was coming at it from the perspective of someone who's already regulated. If you're no, regulated correct. already for, for, then, for, somebody, for yeah. somebody who's
1: already regulated, obviously, um, they're engaging with the regulators all the time anyway on a, on a regular basis. And, and, and yes, they should probably, uh, you know, uh, engage, but, uh, from a startup perspective, who wants to create a new NFT or DAO or organization or, you know, utility token or whatever it may be, um, that's
0: that's a different discussion. Mm. Agreed. So. Agreed. Um, Joe, takeaways for compliance officers.
2: Yeah, you bet. So both of you have some, some amazing ones. I go with the, the one that I've been working on for the last, I guess, seven or eight years in this space, and that is simply education. By far that is, from my vantage point, from my vantage point in talking about this all the time, that is the most important thing that people need to do. It's There's concepts and ideas here that on the surface you might be like, oh yeah, I get it. You really have to get tangible with it. You have to have a digital wallet. You have to exchange these currencies and tokens just to test. There's test nets, all sorts of stuff out there. But if you... If you don't have an understanding of how this stuff works, it's very difficult to wrap your arms around where you could go with this and where things are going with this right now when it comes to even the metaverse and Web3. Fundamentally, to me, that is the most important thing. And I've seen a lot of regulators, and I don't mean any disrespect whatsoever to them, in their writings, in their talks, you can clearly understand that they may be missing the boat about the fundamentals of how this stuff works. On on, built on blockchain, because all this stuff we're talking about is built on blockchain, an immutable ledger, and what you can do with that, and what various um, world-changing things can be done, new platforms, new currencies, and how they all interact, and where we're going digitally, all of that stuff is built on this new idea around decentralization, community, and people being able to, to interact with each other without... Intermediaries. That is the very opposite of what we've all known, loved, maybe not loved, <laughs> for our entire existence. It's a total fundamental change. And if we don't see that this is the literally 180 degrees different from where we were before or where we are right now, then it's people aren't gonna get it. And the rules, the laws, the regulation will not follow properly. Because this is this is a a technology and innovation that can transform and affect people's lives globally like truly globally um, and and change people's existence in terms of what they have ownership they're in in Africa and Latin America all over the world that that they have not had this access before so it's it's really an amazing thing that we can really leverage hopefully going forward
1: yeah I would can I would, con- I would uh, agree with what Joe just said I I think that the inherent longer term conflict that I think will never be resolved is the truly, um, libertarian or decentralized finance, um, concept of, you know, the, some of the core people or core concepts of, of this new world, new digital universe, um, you know, is, is kind of at polar opposites or at odds with regulation. So how those two interact will be something that is perpetually debated or, you know, is going to be a conflict that's going to have to be ironed out. And it may never totally be resolved, Um, on certain levels, but, you know, like I said, the, the largest institutions are going to by and large, do the right things and they want regulatory clarity and things like that. And that, that will, will be, you know, that will happen. Um, there will be components though, that may never embrace. Technology and, you know, or or may never embrace regulation because of their inherent belief in this technology as transformative and libertarian, or, or or what have you. So, it's going to be an interesting, you know, um, landscape that's going to unfold over the coming years.
0: And I think that is the perfect sum up of this. I think interesting actually probably puts it mildly for how cryptos may or may not develop. So <laughs> thank you, Todd. Thank you, Joe. I think that was a fascinating discussion. And thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. And thank you for coming back to for Series 5. Do hope, as ever, you found it both interesting and useful. Um, We'll include links to pieces referenced um, in the podcast, specifically the special report on cryptos that Todd and I wrote. Um, Also, include a link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence. Um, Last but not least, please take the time to review the podcast and let us know for any suggestions you have for future topics. Thanks again for listening. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.